Congratulations! You found it! The most inappropriate book club you never knew you were missing! Starring the original book divas Martha Steele and Vonnie Golden, and also featuring Megan Runyon, YA superfan, Pat Griner, she has the head of an English major and the heart of a sci fi nerd. These people are passionate about books, maybe a little too passionate. Plotting world domination one book at a time, they are three book girls. Did anyone find any like top secret classified documents in the garages this week? I'm not at liberty to discuss that. (laughs) (laughs) I was like yelling at my phone. We made one week without the FBI visiting. And now here we go again. Oh, about the removable scrotums. Keith? Yes, Keith, Keith did. Saw no. it on QI. What's I QI? I keep telling you, you got to watch it. It's on YouTube. It's like a BBC thing. It's QI, but it stands for quite interesting. And it's a comedy panel show, but they give you real facts. And that was one of them. Like each each episode is like this season is, I think, the letter S. And each episode has to do with, you know, that letter. And so, yeah, they were talking about how the CIA actually made and tested a detachable scrotum so the people would have a scrot like one of them removed and then they would put that thing on instead and there was like a little transistor radio inside of it but they never used it in the field see i was not many of them were willing dude it was so gross though it was really lifelike and they had like little hairs all over it It (laughs) like (laughs) the antennas (laughs) they probably yeah, they were like, antenna. how do we activate this in the field? When the antenna doubles as a uh, piercing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. What do they call those piercings? Like a Prince Albert Prince or something? Albert. That's a nice Prince Albert you have there. <laughs> like, hold on, let me see if I can get your favorite station. Yeah, you got it. It's got to be ladder, baby. It's got to be lifelike <laughs> enough that it will pass the sparrow test. Romantic music. The sparrow test. Yeah, music you know for the moon. You, you know that. Well, I, I guess it was, it's been a while since I reviewed that story about the Russian spies where they send them to Sparrow School. And they send all the beautiful women to Sparrow School and teach them how to be seductresses. Oh, and, oh wait, is yes. that the movie they made with... It is. Was it Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence? Yeah, with the Jennifer movie Lawrence. was terrible, yeah. but the book was excellent. It was really good. The second one was even better. I mean, if you think about it, if if you took a really butch woman and put the detachable scrotum and penis on her you know that'd be a a great transmitter with the penis you know you could just take it off and have the (laughs) like a get smartphone but exactly just detach (laughs) that bad boy and put it right up to her ear breaker breaker one nine (laughs) (laughs) oh speaking of really bad music news david david crosby died i love him love but he lived a whole lot longer than he deserved a lot yeah a lot of us i know a lot of us thought (laughs) that he was done for when he got when he got liver disease from being a horrible al- alcoholic drug addict dude oh and he had hepatitis c too yeah we all thought he was, was a, done there for there was a lot of talk about did he pull some strings yes and throw a lot of money to get his new liver and yeah we were all pretty sure it probably did but i still well, you know your loved quality his music. of healthcare depends on your portfolio anyway so yeah and you, you know gotten it before somebody else if you got money you could just go overseas and get yourself a liver from somebody over there have somebody bumped off 
It's really sad. That kind of stuff exists, you guys. There's a big racket of kidney trade going on in India, Nepal. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Nepal does not start with a T. No, but Tibet does. Tibet does. And that's where I was thinking of it. Evidently, (laughs) there are people from China are paying people in Nepal for their kidneys. Well, I this, mean, you only need one series yeah, finale exactly. for New Amsterdam. And they had that. That was part of their yep. plot line was yep. they some guy bought a lung from a guy in Guatemala who gave up a lung in order to get the gangs to he sold it basically to the gangs so they would leave his family alone. Yep. And then the gang sold it to this rich American who was not far enough up on the transplant list. And then it went bad and he had to because the surgery was like done and and they took the lung out and gave it and brought the guy from Guatemala up and put it back into him gave it back to him which I don't think is possible I was looking at that going <laughs> there's no way there's no way you'd get in there fast enough there's no find yeah. out, find so out those things have is. a time clock but he wouldn't have to worry about taking anti-rejection drugs yeah <laughs> I don't know though but would you because now you've had somebody else's like no body I would think that it would be okay if it was your own but I seriously doubt they would be able to do it in the time. Yeah, to get somebody out of a little village in the backwater part of Guatemala, get them a visa, get them to the United yeah, States. I, I can't for see surgery. that. No, that did they like took it out of the other guy and then put it back in the original guy? Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. But they, oh. they would basically have to have, them, like the have them together. Exchange. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, I still think you'd have to take anti-rejection. Yeah, you well, have to take I don't think the anti-rejection that, drugs, you definitely have to take a lot of other kinds of drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually <clears throat> it would be okay if you had them both there together. I just see his lung being like, no, you bitch, you sold me. I'm not fucking going back. (laughs) And just not not working. (laughs) He'd be like, I quit. (laughs) I'm done with you. I like it here. I don't want to go back to Guatemala. (laughs) (laughs) The food's so much better here. We're we're, we're headed for a journey. The the lung went on a journey. The lung went on a journey, yes. So now we need, you need Vonnie to tell us if there was any journeys of body parts in her. I love when you try to segue. I try. Megan, oh. Megan has the stretching that happens, the mental stretching capabilities Megan has to try to find a segue. <laughs> Have Show no bounds, really. <laughs> I do my best. That's what I'm here for. No body parts that made uh, a journey, but there's a lot of people in my book that would probably be interested in that detachable scrotum and penis. bring it so why vonnie why would why would they be interested in that upgrade well i'm reading the series that inspired the game of thrones oh yeah my journal has a goddamn golden ticket in the pocket in the back That That's is funny. so cool. I always wanted Probably a golden ticket. Probably missed your tour, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> I just like was like, what is the back of this journal? And I was I like, got a golden a ticket. God, I love that movie when I was a kid. That just made my whole day. The I'm sorry. Continue about one. the Game of Thrones. <laughs> okay. I got distracted by my golden ticket. So uh, the book I'm reviewing this week is Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. For anyone who doesn't know what Game of Thrones is. I watched the series on HBO a long time ago. And then what is it? House of Dragons that came out? House of the Dragon is is a prequel. 
Right. But I decided, well, before I watch the House of Dragons, I'm just going to read the books because I've kind of always wanted to. And I just haven't. I just didn't understand the endeavor that I was taking on because each one of these books is like 37 hours long. Damn. Yeah. They're they're doorstops. They're huge. And I'm on the last book before house before i'm gonna start house of dragons so i'm on what is that book five Jesus. uh yeah the, the dance one. the dance of the dragon and that's this, the one i'm on this fits into our journey very well too right because there are lots of journeys happening in this book lots of moving parts it's like a chess game it really is i'm kind of glad that i watched the series first or else i would have gotten lost in all of the characters because there's just so many. So this make-believe world of the Game of Thrones is a world of seven kingdoms. And let's see, where's the best way to start? And really the story starts in Winterfell with uh, the Starks. The Starks are kind of like the royal family of Winterfell is how I would describe them. And so it starts with them and kind of their family. Uh, Ned is the mother and what Ned is the father. Sorry. I was trying to remember the mother's name. Ned is the mother and has a detachable scrotum. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Uh, Ned Stark is the father and the mother is Caitlin or is it Catherine? It's Catherine. Caitlin. Is it Catherine, Catherine or Caitlin? Catherine. I think it's Catherine Stark. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, anyways, right. and they have um, three sons, Rob, Brandon and Rickon. Rickon is the youngest. Brandon is the middle. Rob is the oldest. And then they have two daughters, uh, Sanson, Aria. And they also have a bastard bastard son named (gasps) Jon Snow. No. Yeah. Which uh, the mom, Mama Starks, does not like this boy whatsoever. Ned kind of treats him equal. Um, maybe favors his other kids a little bit, but he's pretty good to John. I always kind of thought I like John's character. I like John and I like Arya. Those are probably my two favorites out of the Stark family because Arya is the younger daughter and she's such a tomboy. She has absolutely no interest in putting on a dress and learning manners. She wants to learn how to sword fight and ride horses and shoot a crossbow and all of this cool stuff. Anyways, the king of queen who's over the seven kingdoms and correct me if I'm wrong, because like I said, there's so many moving parts in this who are Circe and Robert Baratheon from King's Landing come to town and everything just kind of turns to shit. The one of the sons is in an accident and he's severely hurt. Fucking Bran. And then he's weird for the rest (laughs) of the books. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of, he turns a little weird. There's a lot of like underlying magic in this kingdom. And Robert, who's very good friends with Ned Starks, wants him to be the king's hand. And that's like the whole reason for this visit to Winterfell from King's Landing. Um, So everything kind of is shuffled around. Jon Snow decides to join the the black what do they call him the black, black watch the black watch at the wall so that's kind of his journey is that what it is that what they're called 
Night's Watch. Sorry, the, the Night's, Night's Watch. Watch. They're called Black Crows, aren't Black they? Black Crows, yes. The, the Black Night's Crows Watch. at the Night's Watch. <laughs> yes. And when you take these vows, um, you are taking a vow that you have no connection to any of your family. Uh, you cannot take a wife. You cannot own lands. Your whole life is about the Night's Watch. And that's it. That's the only thing you're allowed to do, basically. Um, it's like being a priest, only cold. <laughs> well, basically. actually, I was thinking kind of like a knight because knights aren't allowed to own land or get married either. So oh, it's like no. you're you're a knight, but you're a knight of the wall. So that's your life. Some people decide to join the wall voluntarily, like Jon Snow did. But also another way they get people to join the night's watch is prisoners have the option of either dying, losing their boy bits or going to the wall. You want us to cut off your penis or do you want to go live at this very, very cold Northern Wars place and freeze your balls off basically. But you get a real cool looking cloak jacket situation. Yeah, that's very true. And they feed you well. I mean, it's not a bad place to be. Um, <laughs> not yet, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> this is just the first book. <laughs> the books, up until about book three, I think it is, follow the show pretty well. Book three, it starts to definitely take a why from the shows. So that's the journey that Jon Snow takes, is the wall um, I want to say he's like 13 or 14 when he does this. So he's still pretty young, but that's considered grown in these times in this world. Ned takes the job as the king's hand and takes Sansa and Arya to King's Landing because he thinks that both of them would learn a lot and um, it would do them some good to be around real queens and princesses and learn how to be noble be noble yeah for a better term um so that's kind of their journey um caitlin stays because bran is hurt it's not really his fault nope. um somebody pushes him off a high tower because bran is a climber he likes to climb he sees something not he's anymore. Not supposed to. yeah i mean he's like what like eight Eight, I think. Eight, yeah. eight, nine, like right around there. He's so he's young. And they actually didn't think that he would survive. Well, he does. Spoiler alert. Bummer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you could have done without him. Well, I mean, I kind of <laughs> like his journey that he takes, but his journey doesn't really start until really book two or book three. But Caitlin or Catherine, Stark's journey. Uh, she goes to see her sister and um, her sister is really weird. I didn't really like the sister character. I can't even think of her name right now. Um, so that's kind of Catherine's journey. So this first book, it kind of shows you where everybody starts before everybody starts on these journeys. And then of course, you know, Ned goes to be the king of the hand. And that's a lot of the first book. So Ned doesn't really have a choice of being the king's hand. Robert asks him and wants him to accept the job, but basically tells him, you tell me no, I'm just going to force you anyways. Well, there's a lot of backstabbing 
and bad stuff happening at King's Landing that Robert doesn't know about. And Ned finds out way too much information. And then, of course, he has enemies, bad enemies. Eminies. Is he an anemone? Anemone. <laughs> Some bad enemies, and it does not end well for Ned Starks. And I believe that happens at the end of the first book, right? So, Probably. I mean, I'm not telling details just because I don't want to give away too much. But at the end of the first book, after things take place, is kind of where Arya and Sansa's journeys begin. And they continue throughout the books. Or at least, I, I'll i be honest, I'm not done with the last book. I'm like 17 or 18 hours in. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a big commitment. <laughs> but yeah, this book, I mean, I think this book is good. It reminds me a little bit of... Um, like the Lord of the Rings or a book like that, because there's so many characters and it's hard to keep them straight. It really is. If you're reading this book and haven't watched the series, so you're not familiar with characters, you might have to read this more than once to get every piece of information that's out there. I'm kind of finding that out because the last book is so different than the series that I'm like, wait a minute. You need a, this you, person again? You need a guide. By the way, I think you were right. I think it is Caitlin. I think we were all Caitlin? wrong. Caitlin, okay. All right. I just got my <laughs> down off the shelf because I was looking. River Run, I think, is the town name you were looking for. Oh, okay. I don't know uh, that for a fact because, I've, like I said, I haven't read the books, but looking at the I map. I think you're right. I think it's River <laughs> Run. See, you need a, while, while we were watching the show, we watched it after it had already aired except for the eighth season and entertainment weekly put out a, a, a family tree map. Mm-hmm. And we had that sitting on our coffee table so that we could keep track. Yeah. You kind of the people need that. were because there's some people that are just um, background characters in the first book, like Theon Greyjoy. He was a great character. Holy oh, shit. I hate him. And uh, he was a great villain. He was. But he doesn't really have a lot to do in the first book, but he becomes a more prevalent character further along in the series. So it's kind of like you need to pay attention to even these background characters that really don't mean much in the first book because they're going to mean something later. So if I hadn't watched the series, then I would have been a little lost because I wouldn't have remembered who all the characters were from that would have been prevalent later in the series. It's a very complicated book. The books don't have as much sex in it as the series does. Yeah, that's an HBO thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that surprised me. I Speaking mean, there of are... which, Ron turned on House of the Dragon last night, and it took me maybe 10 minutes to throw up my hands and say, fuck this. It's so rapey and bloody and just only the first few episodes i don't care they i'm just done had her, they start they chopping people you know you can chop the arms off of zombies all day long but you start doing it to people and make me watch no thank you you just got to get past those first two episodes nope. that was they how game her, of thrones was too the i didn't first like exactly. that either Six episodes yes. like were nasty fuck that i'm well, not getting they like they, they like to chop ass. things off in the books so i don't know if you'd want to read the books 
Oh, because that is something that's descriptive. I mean, it's pretty gross. Lots of rotting flesh. Rotting flesh is fine. I'm fine with rotting flesh, but maggots crawling around. Maggots are fine. Crows eating bodies that have been played and hanging. That's natural behavior. (laughs) But and another thing that kind of happens, and it doesn't really happen a lot in the first book, it's something that comes along in the series, is there's also this threat of, and you hear it a lot, that winter is coming. Yeah, man. So apparently in this world that they live in, you have like years and years of just summer. And then when winter comes, it's a very bad thing. And one of the reasons why winter is a bad thing is because on the other side of the wall, there are, what do they call them? The zombies. The Wall- white, white walkers. Scary frozen zombies. White walkers. White yeah, walkers. they're basically like zombies. White walkers. And you also have the wildlings who basically are just kind of like lawless, lawless people. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say they're the just hobbits. a different the faction. The they're just a different a faction that don't have the quote civilized. Will they're, they're they're like if you combined the hobbits <laughs> and then the dwarfs, like personality wise. John finds him a will. <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> <laughs> he likes those redheads. That's what he likes. Uh, and he married her in real life. So so. Apparently he really likes those redheads. But, <laughs> but yeah, this, I mean, even though I'm still reading this series and I started it in like September, it's been a good ride. I can't wait to finish it and get to House of Dragons and then watch the show on, on HBO and see how different it is. I know you don't like it, Martha. Martha, what? just get past the first two episodes. And no, then be- I am not putting myself through that trauma. Thank you very much. There's not enough magic to justify that fucking bullshit. No, it's the best. Lord and Savior Damon Targaryen is all I'm saying. Anyway. Man could do no wrong, even though he's awful. Whatever. See, these okay, did you give one of the reasons why I wanted to read the books. Yeah. Did you give Tidal an artist? So I guess my review is over. I yes, so. it is. We are time sensitive here, Missy. Oh, that's right, because we have five. Well, Pat told me that my reviews weren't long enough. So I was trying to go one episode. <laughs> um, and that was Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. Okay, Keith, what's your journey? <laughs> uh, so the book I read for our journey theme is called Runaway Groomsman by Megan Quinn. Obviously, there's Runaway Groomsman. So we we open and um, Sawyer is the screenwriter and he has a girlfriend and he's had he's been with this woman for five years and he has a best friend and they've all kind of struggled together in their like trying to get popular in LA. They're actors and he's a screenwriter. He makes it big before they do. And he writes these rom-coms that are very, very popular. And he gets his two friends, like his two significant others, I guess, in one of the rom-coms and they became this huge deal. And then of course, his girlfriend of five years leaves him for her co-star who is his best friend. So, and because they're huge actors, the studio that he has a contract with basically is like, you cannot slam them. You have to act like you really 
love their relationship. And so when the actor asks him to be the best man at his ex-girlfriend's wedding. Oh, my God. He has to go. That's some PR level bullshit right there. Right? <laughs> so by the time the wedding comes around, the movie is out. Um, he has one more screenplay that he has to write for the studio. He has made it big. And he's standing up there thinking about just how much he hates both of them because they have betrayed him. And now they're acting like they're this beautiful couple and they pretend he never existed. Nobody knows the real backstory of how they even met. And so as he's standing at the altar, he just kind of snaps and he says, you know what? This is, this is fucking bullshit. So he just kind of starts walking out. And the bride is really like, what's going on? And he just kind of turns back, flips the double bird at everybody and walks out. And is like, you know what? I've had it with LA for a while. So he then takes a journey and he has no idea where he's going. He just drives and drives. And then he's, and he finds this little town called Canoodle. Which is just hysterical. <laughs> it's just a stupid name. So it's this tiny little town. And of course, they're real touristy. And I mean, all the clothes have canoodle on the butts because they're just. There should be a dating app called Canoodle. There that would be, be a cute name for a dating yeah, app. That would be a great name for a dating app. So he ends up in Canoodle's one bar and gets hammered out of his fucking mind. And the bartender and her best friend, who happens to own a bunch of cabins that they rent to tourists, take him to one of the cabins because he's like literally passed out drunk. The woman Fallon, who owns the cat, who runs the cabins, she recognizes him because she was set up on a blind date with him and he just looked at his phone the entire time and basically ignored her. He doesn't even recognize her when he sees her. That's how totally out of it on this date he was. So she, of course, doesn't have super pleasant feelings toward him. And she is on her own journey. She is not from here, but she's come back because her grandfather, who runs the uh, the little rental cabins, has Alzheimer's and is deteriorating rapidly and can't live by himself and can't do his job. And so she um, has left. She's also from out in the LA area and she has left and come to this town. And she is now focusing on bringing the cabins back to life, but they need all sorts of work. And uh, Sawyer, back when he couldn't get work as a screenwriter, he, uh, you know, a lot of people are struggling and they wait tables. He was, uh, he worked in construction. So to make up for the fact that he has no idea who she is, even though they went on a date once and the fact that they were nice to him when they could have just, you know, robbed him blind or left him passed out in the parking lot of the bar, he starts helping with the renovations and he pretty much finds that he likes this small town a lot more than he ever liked all the fakeness and the yuck of L.A. The whole book is hysterical because Megan Quinn is the queen of the snark. I mean, she's just 
she has the most sarcastic wit. And as somebody who also pretty much lives in sarcasm, I really appreciated it. So this was a really, it wasn't poignant. It was touching though. It was really sweet. Um, there's really a lot in how hard it is to deal with people who are in and out of their reality of where they should be. I mean, he, his dementia is pretty bad. And so sometimes he doesn't, he's not in the right time. And you just see how much she struggles to do that and to keep his business afloat. Yeah, it was a really sweet story. And I mean, both characters had a far reaching journey, as it were, to completely change their lives from where they used to be. And that again was Runaway Groomsman by Megan Quinn. Excellent. Oh, and there's a best friend in it and she carries a switchblade everywhere and <gasps> she threatens everybody with it and she's the best. Awesome. <laughs> so what, are you, what you're saying is you'd like me better if I were a little more stabby? Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> she carries it with her in case she ever has to slash anybody's tires. Oh, I see. So I don't know who we should have next. How about Pat? The journey I went on took me into Alaska and across. I knew it was going to be somewhere cold. It, <laughs> but it was summer in Alaska. That doesn't mean anybody so survived. Cold. But <laughs> I read Into the Wild by John Krakauer. And this was the story, a uh, very well-known story in the 90s. Chris McCandless was a young man who set out to find himself delve into his values and ended up in a bus in the uh, an abandoned bus in the Alaskan wilderness where he died and it was a pretty famous news story I think so I'm not going to worry too much about spoilers because everyone knows what happened to him but it was an interesting journey he's it starts out when he's in college there's some information about his earlier life but basically when he's in college he starts becoming enamored of the works of authors like Thoreau and Jack London and Tolstoy, all of whom wrote about giving up material stuff and living a more streamlined, ascetic, essential kind of life. And he really took that stuff to heart. He came from a wealthy family, and when he graduated from college, he had $24,000 in his bank account, which he gave to the Oxfam charity and set out with nothing but an old beater car and the clothes on his back, basically. Hitched around the, uh, well, he traveled around the country until the car died. He got it stuck somewhere in the desert. I want to say either Utah or Nevada, I'm not sure which. But he abandoned the car there and then he was hitching from then on. He had a canoe or a kayak. He went down into Mexico, got lost in the backwaters of of Mexico and finally made his way out to the ocean, went up to North Dakota and worked at a grain elevator for a while while he saved up money to buy equipment because his ultimate goal was going to Alaska. Everyone who encountered him, he stayed with various groups of people in the Southwest desert and up in North Dakota. And everyone says that he was really a very level-headed, hard-working person. He had lofty ideals that were maybe impossible to achieve, but if you hired him to do a job, he worked his butt off. 
He did the jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Everybody who hired him wanted him to come back and work for them again. He didn't screw around, really. He didn't do any of the things that you think you know, young men on on their way to finding themselves might be prone to do. He lived a pretty ascetic lifestyle. And finally, when he had accumulated um, enough to get the equipment that he wanted, which was maybe not as much equipment as he truly turned out to need, he set off for Alaska, hitched his way up the coast. And his last ride that he took before entering the wilderness was with uh, I believe an electrical worker who picked him up and gave him a ride to the head of what's called the Stampede Trail. And he told this guy, I'm going to go off and live in the wilderness, live off the land. He had a bag of rice. That was the only provisions he took with him. It was a good sized bag, but still, at most, it was 10 or 15 pounds of rice. And he was pretty sure that he knew enough to live off the land, except that in the early spring, when he hitched up there, a lot of the uh, plants and things were not in bloom yet. There was not a lot to live off of. And he crossed uh, the Teklanika River, which was frozen at the time still. So he gets back into the wild and there was this bus, which had been placed back there as an emergency shelter. It was an old city bus that had been decommissioned and hunters and, and other backwoods adventurers could use it as a temporary shelter if needed. The point that Krakauer makes is that McCandless did better for himself than 99.9% .9 of people would have done in this situation. He did manage to live off the land for, I think, 118 days. He shot game, mostly small game, squirrels, birds, porcupines, and lived off of those. He shot a moose at one point and went through, uh, well, he butchered it and tried to smoke the meat, but smoking the meat turned out not to be a feasible idea in the backcountry, and the meat started going bad before he could use it and felt just horrible. He did leave a journal behind, and he felt awful about shooting this moose and then not being able to utilize it and eat it so that it was a wasted death. Toward the end, Krakauer's theory is that really he made two crucial mistakes. One was that he did not have a detailed topographical map of the area he was going into. And that may have been part of his commitment to doing this survival with a minimum of what modern society can offer. He wanted to really go back to not stone age things, but, but fairly primitive equipment. If he had had that map, he would have been able to get out. There was a point about a month, I think, before he died when he said, I've, I've made my point, and he kept noted in his journal that he was going to hike out. But by that time, it was summer, and the Teklanika River had thawed, and it was a raging torrent. He could not get back across it. If he had had the map, he would have seen that less than a mile away from where he was, there was a ranger station with a basket on a steel cable that could go back and forth over the river, but he didn't know it was there. So when the river stopped him from getting back out to the trailhead, he went back to the bus and said, well, if I wait, you know, a month or so, the river will, will calm down. It'll, it will probably be crossable. 
But in that time, his one of his major food sources, which was the wild potatoes that grow up there, in the summer, the roots get tough and you can't eat them anymore. And as the roots got tough, he turned to eating the seeds from these potatoes. And unbeknownst, even though he had a guide to what was edible plants that he would find in the wild, even that guide made no mention of the fact that the seeds at some point in their development start to accumulate a toxin. And so he ate these seeds that have a toxin in them. And the theory is that he probably, as a result of that toxin, it blocked him from being able to absorb any nutrients from a yeah. little bit of other food that he had. And that is why he starved to death. Oh. But he left pretty lucid notes right up to the end. He was reading, uh, especially Tolstoy and Thoreau uh, and some of Jack London and underlining passages. He really sounds like a young man who was very idealistic and a little too sure of his own ability to survive in the wild, but not the kind of irresponsible or suicidal loony that a lot of reporting after his death made him out to be. Krakauer gotcha. takes the takes the uh, point that he was very close to being able to do what he set out to do. The book is interesting because Krakauer parallels Chris McCandless's journey with some of his own. He's he as a young man, Krakauer that is, also set out to climb a mountain in Alaska that no one else had climbed and got into trouble and was very lucky to get out with his life. And he compares his thought processes and his experiences with what McCandless would have gone through or probably went through, which it gives a certain depth to it. And it also talks about some other people who have gone out to try and live in the wilderness, some of whom survived, some of whom didn't. And some of them made me very curious to read other stories in this line, particularly a British army officer by the name of Franklin, who was sent out to explore the, the wilds of Western Canada. The first time he went out, he darn near got his whole company killed because he was not in any way prepared to lead an expedition like that. And the British government turned around and sent him out on two more expeditions. One in which luckily they got back by the time he went on the third one, they disappeared without a trace. And 128, I think, people just disappeared into the wilderness because this guy was kind of an idiot that they kept putting in charge of the expeditions. So now I'm curious to see if there's there must be a book about him. Maybe I'll have to look that one up. But it's a very, it, it changed my mind. I mean, I had heard of a, about the story and like most people thought, oh, what an idiot, some <laughs> guy who went out there and was half suicidal or or just totally unprepared. He actually came very close to achieving his goal. And he sounds like he was a very thoughtful young man and pretty much a sad loss for the world that he died young up there. So that was Into the Wild by John Krakauer. I remember hearing about that story <laughs> a couple of times. Mm -hmm. They yeah. made a movie about yes. it, at least. Yeah. Yeah. At least one. All right. All right, Megan. Where's your journey taking us? So our journey takes us to Russia. 
part of the time. Part of the time we're in New Hampshire. Uh, this is kind of a journey of family. And I am reviewing The Storyteller by uh, Catherine Williams. And this book is set in 2007. And that is important because in 2007, we did not know that the missing two Romanov bodies would soon be found. So, right. So this is still in the age of like, well, maybe Anastasia survived. Maybe one of the other siblings survived because we've only officially found five of the seven. So that kind of sets the scene for you a little bit. Uh, we have our main character, Jess, and she is a junior in high school. I believe she may be a senior somewhere in there. And she is kind of battling with how to be herself. She doesn't know what that means necessarily because she started dating this guy named Ryan and he's kind of like the all American guy. He is on like his, he goes to a private school. He's on their ski team. They live in New Hampshire or somewhere like that. And you know, he, she first meets him and she's like, Oh, he's so cute. And he's like, do you like skiing? And she's like, yeah, of course. And then, then her inner monologues like you dumbass, you don't even know how to ski. What are you talking about? Stop talking, <laughs> but she's smitten. And so she starts to, you know, change kind of who she is because she's with like the popular kid. And that makes her proxy by or like popular by default. Um, so there's one day she's helping her mother clean out her two times great aunt's attic. Her great aunt had died um, a few years back and they're going to get the house sold and they're going through the attic and she finds this like steamer trunk and she opens it and it's just full of diaries and journals. So she's like, hey, mom, can I take this? And her mom's like, I don't care. Do what you want. <laughs> I don't even know what it is because it's her dad's side of the family is this great aunt. So she takes the diaries and realizes that they're in a language that she has no idea what it is. So she starts Googling and is like ruling out languages like, okay, it's not French. It's not Japanese. It's not Chinese. It's not Korean, you know, like just kind of narrowing it down and then figures out that it is Russian. So she places an ad online basically saying like, Hey, I need a translator. If there's anyone here, there's a college town close by. So not too far of a long shot to think there may be someone who can translate. And this is when we meet Evan. So Evan is the college kid. He's a freshman, I think. Um, and he's like, sure, I'll translate these for you. Like $40 a book. And she's like, yeah, sure. I can, you know, swing this for a little while, just get enough of these journals to figure out who my two times great aunt is. And in the meantime, she's still dating Ryan, her best friend, Katie, uh, not a big fan of Ryan. And they get in a big fight about the fact that Katie feels like Jess isn't herself when she's around Ryan. She becomes like a different person, you know, typical things that happen in high school relationships. So Katie's not really around and she's not really telling Katie things. She's not telling her. She doesn't tell anyone about the journals except for Evan. And when Evan starts translating these journals, he kind of freaks out and she's like, what, what's wrong? Like, what are you so excited out about slash freaked out about? And he says, these journals that are your aunts, she's claiming to be Anastasia. And so they start digging through these journals. And if these were journals that I found in my aunt's attic, they were so well written that if you, even if you knew a basic understanding of like the Russian revolution and like all this, you would be like, yeah, these journals are true. 
like these things track like these could be anastasia's journals because she talks about um the house they stayed in when they were moved from the first house from the palace and it talks about the second house then it talks about all the different stuff and you're just kind of like yeah absolutely these could be true and Evan is kind of skeptical. He's like, I don't know. Like, you know, there's been so many imposters. There's been a woman in Berlin that ended up being Anna Andrews who claimed to be Anastasia. You know, there's hundreds of people, not hundreds, but lots of people that have come forward over the years trying to claim to be Anastasia. And he just doesn't really, he's like, this wouldn't make sense. Like, how did she get to New Hampshire or wherever they live from Russia? And why, why are these journals in the attic? Uh, But it, is so well done and so intriguing that you're when you're reading them as if you were them and you're and they're of course they're sitting there like googling like as soon as her, the journal mentions a person they're like did this person exist did this place exist because they're trying to track the story through the journals like is this even possible that if anastasia survived if some if there was you know uh I don't, czarist isn't the right word they called it actually they called them white russians <laughs> um the russians that were still loyal to the czar managed to save her somehow in this shootout like could she get from where they were to this point in the journal and could she get to this point and so it was it was a fun little journey to take of them reading them anna anastasia becomes just a or anna in the journals and it talks about you know, how she got to Berlin and then she went to Paris and then she went to England and then she came to New York and somebody discovered who her secret was and she ran away to the next place and all these kind of things. And I just loved every minute of it because I love all things Anastasia and I won't tell you more about the journals because I don't want to give spoilers. Um, But it's a fun journey of is her aunt, the missing Anastasia. Uh, this book was published last year, so it's not like an older book. It's just set in 2007. Um, so is her aunt somehow a Romanoff? Is she not a Romanoff? If she's not, why, why did she write all these very detailed journals to try to make it look like she was? And if she is, how did all the journals survive and get here and all that? So in the meantime, Jess is really discovering like, hey, you know what? I don't like who I am when I'm with Ryan because they run into Evan at like a shoe store and Ryan's just a dick to Evan and she doesn't really stand up for him. And then she immediately goes home and feels horrible because she's like, this guy's, I've been spending tons of time with him. He's a great guy. And my boyfriend's just an asshole. So it's a lot of her self-discovery. She starts to, you know, realize like, Hey, just because my mom said I should play soccer doesn't mean I have to. And, you know, and just kind of that coming of age of what it's like to become kind of a free thinking adult or a college student to some extent. And I just loved it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I said, I'm a sucker. The Romanovs were probably one of the first things in history. I remember being like obsessed with, like I was in a history class and somebody said something. I was like, no, you're wrong. (laughs) Like I've read all these things. You're wrong. And I remember being really fascinated with the thought of did Anastasia get away? Obviously we know she did not. Spoiler alert on that (laughs) historical front. But we, it took us them a while to find her and Alexei or whoever. I can't remember if it was the, her brother or one of her sisters that they found a couple feet down from the original grave. But yeah, I, thoroughly, I, I spent a lot of time wondering if Anastasia survived. And then, of course, the Anastasia movie was one of my favorites growing up. And 
now she's a Disney princess. So that makes me super happy because <laughs> she should have been the whole time. Thank you, Disney, for buying Fox movies so that Anastasia could be a princess like she's supposed to be. Uh, <laughs> I have strong feelings about it, okay? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I gave it uh, four and a half stars. I loved it. And now I'm down in the Anastasia rabbit hole, so here we are. Uh, and that was The Storyteller by Catherine Williams. Did you see the TikTok about the Disney princesses where um, they're talking about Princess Leia, like joining the princesses? It was Oh, like yeah. A, a bunch of people. No, it was a funny thing. Oh, I would say she, technically she is. She's part of the Disney universe. Right. But like they have this tea or brunch kind of thing and it's all fancy and she comes in, you know, and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White are, you know, welcoming her to the Disney family and yada, yada. And oh. I can't remember, like, somebody comes in and, like, oh, it's, um, who's the bad guy that has, or the bad woman that has the horns from Sleeping Beauty? Maleficent. Maleficent. Maleficent comes in being her bad self. And all of the princesses are like, oh, we need a knight. We need somebody to save us. And Princess Leia just like takes a gun out of her ankle <laughs> holster and like shoots Boom. Maleficent between the eyes. That's I just saw that. I love that thing. <laughs> That's probably exactly what Leia would do. Leia would be like, I don't want to need saved. <laughs> right. We'll have to have Keith link that in the podcast. It was a great podcast. I'll have to- it was a fantastic and that's why everybody should be like Princess Leia. Yep. Don't need no freaking knight in shining hour or knight in shining, shining armor. Listen, <laughs> I can't talk today. I can't talk when I'm stuffy. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, last but not least, my my journey for our January journeys is taking us on a post-apocalyptic sort of quest, I guess you could say. So my book is called The Book of Coley, and it's by M.R. Carey. Constant readers will remember that that's the same author that wrote Girl with All the Gifts and a bunch of other really great novels that I can't think of right now, but I've read most of those. The Boy on the Bridge. Thank you. And there was one that took place in a prison. That was really good, too. I'm blanking it out at the moment. Anyway, um, I really didn't think... I really didn't think I was going to be able to finish this because it's written in a time where grammar has deteriorated, grammar and spelling. And I listened to the audio and it was still really hard for me to acclimate to the way he spoke and the way that everyone spoke. And you get the idea that this is way, way after the world as we know it has ended. And they live in this place that's sort of just a primitive village. And they have some very specific rules about the use of remaining technology. You, you can kind of guess almost right away that there's something up with this. Because there's one family who traditionally has been able to wake up the technology and use it so there are some really impressive weapons that they have but they when they're um when they come of age they're allowed 
to try it out to see if it'll wake up for them. And Coley, of course, is a young man, and he goes, they separate the young people from everyone else for a certain amount of time. They all go live in this house that's separate. And they're getting ready for their waking ceremony. I don't remember exactly what they called it. It's been several months since I read the book. But long story short, his friend, who's a member of that family, ends up being able to wake up the technology and Coley, who has always wanted to be one of those, of course, like most young boys, isn't able to wake the technology. So then later on, after this part is over, after, you know, they've been separated out into their different jobs that they'll be doing, he meets with this traveling woman who's sort of like a doctor. And she says something to him that makes him believe well, she kind of shows him something that makes him believe that they're cheating. He understands that the reason the technology wakes up for them is not because they're special. It's because they have certain knowledge of how to do it. So he basically steals a piece of technology that's like a, it's basically a higher tech version of what Alexa would be. But she just plays music. That's what she does. Well, he, he wakes her up because he basically knows where the on button is. <laughs> so he wakes her up and, and he has this kind of companionship that he forms with this AI. The world as we know it is completely broken. And there is, is no other technology except for these weapons that they have. Well, of course, as soon as Coley figures out what the hell's going on, he gets kicked out of, <laughs> of the place. Once, you, once you're kicked out, you can never come back. And they have a word for that, and I can't remember what it is right off the top of my head. But he goes on a journey when he leaves the encampment, the place that he grew up, the only place he knows of. And the only stories he's ever heard about the outside are horrible, of course. Well, he immediately gets out there and starts to run into some old technologies, which are way beyond what we have now, even. And so that's those are interesting things that, that become a part of his awakening. And he gets captured by this cult and goes through some just horrific shit. It's a great for I'm really surprised that I loved it as much as I did because I was absolutely convinced it, within that first few pages that I was not going to be able to get through it. But just like a really good fantasy novel, you're able to get over the hump of the language and be able to sort of get sucked into his world and his way of thinking. And he forms this friendship with the doctor who is the traveling, you know, she travels around to all these different things. What she's trying to do is she's trying to solve the fertility problem that has kept the world from moving forward because they're not able to have kids anymore. And so that's the ultimate goal for her. And he kind of runs into her a couple of times and 
we end up going on to book number two. And there are three total, and I have not finished the second one yet. But I will say that Coley's journey really has me hooked because the world itself is interesting. And the characters are so rich that you really want to learn more about him and about his life. Plus, the idea of what could happen after technology disappears has always been really interesting to me. I've always wondered what would happen if, for example, instead of the Bible surviving, if the only print material we had left was the Lord of the Rings, if that would be our Bible, just for example. So I had always kind of thought about things like that after having watched... um, Mad Max and Beyond Thunderdome and my young imagination just sort of would create possibilities of which literature are we going to be left with and how would the world go about its business if that were the case. So even though it's not specific to this book, it still is the reason my imagination was captured by it. And that once again was called The Book of Coley by M.R. Carey. That is interesting if you think about what's left, like what would be, what would become our quote unquote Bible, Yeah, what survived. Yeah. And Um, it was interesting to me is that he actually found a way to use this music player as a weapon. Because really that was the only thing that was valuable in their society was trying to protect themselves from people outside their little, their little world. And so he was able to take something that was so innocuous and use it as a way to help himself in that world. It was, it was fascinating for a bunch of different reasons, but that was one of the things that was like, hey, that's pretty cool that he was able to figure that out with the help from the AI, of course. But. Music as a weapon. Well, they, they use it in torture chambers. Yeah, or- that's right. They play Barry Manilow loud for what five days before they uh before they set waco to going i love like barry manilow so do i actually I and didn't him. they use it in guantanamo too yeah i think yes. so copacabana yeah. as torture yeah that's one of my favorite sci-fi books is kind of that whole thing about what's left mm-hmm. it's the canical for Leibowitz. Yeah, I, I also left. yes i also After read the, that yeah yeah the electrical blueprint and a shopping list. Yes. And they become the wholly venerated literature. <laughs> yeah, it really, it is fascinating to think about all the gadgets that we have and how useless they would become so quickly. They wouldn't make yes. sense to anybody else for, you know, without electricity. It was quite a journey for all of us. We had a journey to a fictional kingdom. Kingdom, yep. We had a journey to... Uh, a runaway groomsman we had a trip to alaska we had a trip to find kind of a runaway princess but not really we don't know princess i guess yeah yeah. (laughs) and a trip forward in time so i think that was a pretty comprehensive look at what kinds of journeys we could go through into the literary realm Yes. Gee, look at me being all profound and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think any good book involves a journey of some sort, whether it's psychological, physical, 
uh, spiritual, whatever. You Any good book involves somebody getting from point A to point B. Do we want, well, all oh. I have to say is when you're going on a journey, you got to make sure to have the things you will need. For example, you got to have a lot of snacks. You got yeah, not just a big bag of freaking rice. That is yeah, stupid. you got to have a lot of snacks. You got to have a shiwi. You got to have. <laughs> yeah, gotta have a we lot. need sponsored by shiwi for as much as we talk about that damn thing. We shiwi. We need a sponsorship. Well, you know what? I saw one this morning uh, that was being advertised on Facebook. That was a, a disposable female urinal. Well, that's pretty much just a wide mouth jar true come on or a piece of cardboard just a funnel yeah, yeah. yeah. just a funnel cardboard funnel yes you need a way Enough gas in the tank yep you need a way to protect yourself so it'd be the a switchblade good idea to have a, the stabby mix with a switchblade uh what else something to read oh god yes or an audiobook if you're driving obviously don't read a book and drive, people. You know what I feel like is underrated what? on a travel journey? What? Fucking bug spray. That's really a good point. It even now they have those bracelets. You just wear the bracelets and then the, the bugs yeah. stay. Clearly, those people have never been to Minnesota. That's all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> those bugs are wearing those fucking bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> so you know when it was real windy last week, like yeah. insanely windy? Uh-huh. I just probably finished watching true crime was getting in my bed and i just hear like thud in the backyard and i'm like i'm gonna die this is it this is someone is in my backyard i was like i don't know what that could possibly be so what did you do scissors knife what oh no so i sat there for a little while i was like texting my group chat like all the dnr i was like like, guys there's like a real weird noise but then it would like stop and none of the dogs were barking which as we know my neighbor's dog not barking would be an oddity then I like heard it again. And I was like, that sounds like someone is literally like outside my window. So I went out, I like texted like my group chat. I was like, so who was, it was like midnight. I was like, who was awake that can FaceTime me while I walk in the pitch ass black dark of my what backyard? Would that have done? Because at least then someone would know where I was. <laughs> What'd you say, Keith? I said, what would that have done? Because at least so- it, somebody would have seen you die. Yeah. They can call the police and say, she's dead. Yeah, exactly. Take care of the I body. didn't see anything. It was too dark. It was too, no, I took a flash. <laughs> I took a like lantern with me. You're supposed to there. take a freaking baseball bat, weirdo. No, I don't have one of those. So I go out there, go around the dark corner and my goddamn neighbors have come in my backyard to get their basketball that they continue to throw over the fence and they didn't close the fucking gate. So it was the gate. <laughs> I was so mad. I was like, you little fuckers gave me a I wish it had been a criminal to kill me. (laughs) So now my gate is zip tied shut so those little fuckers can't get back in there. (laughs) Oh, I thought I would literally, because I just watched all the stuff about the Idaho murder and I was like, yep, this is Brian Kohlberg Jr.'s in my backyard. (laughs) Like, it's got to be. No, just my own gate. Pat, you have a really great story. An intruder. An intruder. Yeah, and in the small town of Lander, Wyoming, it was uh, just an item that made it onto their police blotter on the uh, web at like quarter to three in the morning. They get a call. Someone calls the police and says there's a guy in a mask outside their window banging on the window. And so the police headed over there and found no person around but a deer 
with a dog food bag stuck on its head that was oh. banging into the window. And it, then the police blotter just noted, and they removed the bag and the deer ran off. And that is, that's crime in small town Wyoming. Yeah. I mean, the neighbors, they weren't wrong. There was a masked something in their backyard. That's true. They I don't do think they just... Try what? not for the mass singer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That should be somebody's next mass singer costume. Just like a deer with like a trash bag stuck on its antler. <laughs> I'd pay to watch Jenny McCarthy wear that. <laughs> yes. I wouldn't. <laughs> no, she'd probably have her boobs hanging out with the bag over her head and we'd all know who she was. That's a nice rack you got there. <laughs> That's gonna do it for three, three book girls. Can't get enough of three book girls? Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow them on TikTok, YouTube, and check out their website at threebookgirls.com. And join the group Three Book Girls Tribe on Facebook. If you really love them, share the podcast with a friend or join them at one of their live events. Three Book Girls, a Steel Trap production.